It is good to be with you guys. Uh, if this is your first time here, uh, my name is Garrison, and I am one of the pastors here at Veritas. We're very glad that you're here. Uh, if you want to open in your Bibles to Psalm 1, Psalm 1, we're going to be looking at Psalm 1, considering um, what it means to meditate on God's Word, what it means to be truly blessed and truly happy. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be white paperback Bibles at the edge of each bench. You can grab one of those. Turn to Psalm 1, Psalm chapter 1. It's the very first psalm of all 150 psalms. Psalm 1. Um, since we're in a new series, uh, I'd like to take a moment to do some sort of introductory remarks. We're now in the season of Lent, as uh, you have heard this morning. Lent is a season of repentance and consecration. Uh, it's a season wherein we give ourselves to, to self-examination and, and intentionally, uh, in, a, in a resting in God's grace sort of way, question the authenticity of our discipleship. And uh, where we're found wanting, we repent, uh, we turn to the Lord, we rest in His forgiveness, and we gather strength to change from Him. And uh, true, we're to do that in all seasons and in all times, Uh, but sometimes it can be helpful to kind of zero in and kind of laser focus on one aspect of the Christian life, like repentance. And so Lent is is doing just that. It's a season of repentance, also a season of consecration. Uh, It's a season wherein we establish new rhythms and new habits, uh, new habits of worship, new habits of of fasting and prayer, and new habits of, of Bible reading and Bible meditation, new habits of service and mercy. Uh, and that's actually one of the reasons that uh, a season like Lent can be so incredibly helpful because it's us as a community really intentionally seeking to grow in these sorts of things together in worship, discipline, prayer, service. Um, I think if some of us are honest, uh, the amount of times in our lives as Christians that we take seasons and set aside seasons to really intentionally focus on and growing in these sorts of things uh, is probably few and far between. Uh, We never drift into seasons like that, and and if we're not intentional in doing so, it will just never happen. And so um, if you can't remember the last time that you had a season when you were intentionally placing yourself before God and saying, I'm yours, I'm going to begin new habits of prayer and and fasting and service, um, that's just a, a helpful way that you can approach this season, the next six the next six weeks, uh, and, and, and that's how we can approach Lent and think about Lent together. If you, especially if you don't have regular rhythms of, of fasting and prayer and Bible reading and, and regular habits of service and mercy in your life. This is just a wonderful time for you to pursue growth in those areas, and we're, he- we're he- here to help you with that. We, we want to help you with kind of beginning new practices such as that. Uh, we have a number of Veritas members who are involved with uh, really wonderful ministries of mercy and service in our city. This is a good season for you to uh, implement the the discipline of service and mercy in your life on a weekly basis. You can get in contact with uh, one of our deacons, particularly uh, our our deacon of mercy, Mike Squire. Speak uh, with him about things like Safe Families and the Victory Project and and Young Life and Miracle Makers and and things like that. And see if there isn't a way that you can uh, be intentionally serving others through uh, some of those wonderful ministries. And not only that, but also uh, we want to help you grow in Bible reading and meditation and in prayer. Uh, And and that's why we've put out a number of uh, good resources uh, to help you along with that. We put out our weekly worship guide that's kind of uh, giving you the breakdown of what we're going to do at corporate worship. 
and also uh, just some ways that you can implement family worship at home and private worship uh, uh, by yourself at home. And we put those out weekly for you uh, to take advantage of those. Uh, that's why we handed out these uh, private worship guides that you should have received when you walked in this morning. Uh, these are intended to help you grow in your pursuit of spiritual disciplines like Bible reading and meditation and prayer. And uh, also to that end, our sermon series over the next six Sundays is going to be focusing on just that. Uh, The next six Sundays, we're going to be looking at the Psalms to glean from them concerning the rhythm and practice of prayer. Uh, Psalms is the largest book uh, in the Bible, and it's probably one of my favorites, if not my favorite book of the Bible. Uh, It's a book of poems intended to be used by God's people for the purpose of singing and prayer. Uh, It's a hymnal and it's a prayer book for God's people. It's absolutely gorgeous poetry uh, that is uh, intended to teach us how to pray, how to be a prayerful people. We don't know how to pray uh, as we ought. Romans 8, 26 says that. We don't know how to pray as we ought. And so the Lord graciously gives us his words to speak back to him in prayer in the Psalms. Um, If you want to know how to pray, the Psalms are a wonderful place to start. Uh, We always tell our our daughter, uh, if you go to pray, you don't know what to say, you can just pray the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and and, and uh, we can approach the Psalms uh, in a similar manner. If you ever find that you just don't have words to pray, either because you're exhausted or depressed or overwhelmed or for some reason unbeknownst to you, you can literally pray the Psalms. The Psalms are for you. Um, I remember learning this for the first time back in uh, 2008. Uh, I was on this missions, uh, missionary training base in Wyoming, and um, I was a new believer, and uh, this uh, missionary family was kind of traveling through, and uh, the, the wife and the mother of the crew, uh, I ended up talking with her for some time, and I was telling her, I just, I'm really struggling with learning how to pray. I don't know how to pray. It's, it's hard for me, uh, and, and, and I'm, I'm struggling to learn how to do this. Uh, and, and as I was telling her this, she said, you know, you can read the Psalms out loud to God and that will fix your problem. Um, and I, you know, I was like, can you do that? I, I didn't know that you could do that. And she said, yeah, uh, doofus, you know, the Christians have been doing that for the last 2,000 years. Um, and so it, it was revolutionary for me. I didn't know that, uh, I, you know that I didn't have to start from scratch. I literally had this prayer book in front of me that uh, God had given the, his words for us to pray back to him. That's, that's what the Psalms are for, and that's a, a, a wonderful way to use them. And not only that, but even if you have a multitude of words, even if you have just, you're overwhelmed with all the words that you want to say to God, all the things that you want to tell God, God about. The Psalms can still give shape and structure to your prayer. The Psalms are kind of raw material for you to work with in terms of learning how to pray and growing in how to pray when you have specific things to bring to the Lord. Walter Brueggemann uh, said about this, he said that the Psalms function not only as a discipline and instruction about how to pray, but also as invitation and authorization to speak imaginatively beyond these words themselves. So they give us words to pray when we have none, and they give us uh, shape and form, and they invite us to pray boldly even beyond what the Psalms say themselves. And one of the reasons that I think praying the Psalms can be so incredibly valuable is because they give you permission to express every imaginable thing you might think or, or feel. The Psalms give uh, vent to every imaginable human emotion. Uh, John Calvin once said that the Psalms are like mirrors to our souls. They reveal what is within us. Uh, the, it, it's, it's like an anatomy of the human soul. 
Uh, the, the words found on the pages of the Psalms uh, literally give words and vent and expression to every experience and emotion and, and yearning of your soul. The, there are psalms of praise and thanksgiving. There are psalms of, of sadness and mourning and anger. There are songs, uh, psalms of shame and guilt and, and, and anger. Uh, the, these psalms, these, these, the, the list could go on and on as, as far as to what they cover. And not only that, not only do these uh, prayers give us expression to all of these experiences and emotions and, and yearnings of the human soul, they also form the human soul. And J.I. Packer once said that the psalms teach us how to feel. They teach us how to feel. They teach us how to align our emotions with what God's word says. They teach us how to face our sadness and and anger and frustration and depression and anxiety. They teach us how to express our praise and gratitude and and thanksgiving and joy and guilt and shame. They teach us to trust God in the midst of it all. Truly, no matter whether you're a beginner or you've been praying for decades and decades, uh, the Psalms are for you to enrich, to inform, to inflate your prayer life. And so, Lord willing, as we dig into this ancient prayer book that God himself has given us in the next six Sundays, we will grow in things like what it means to meditate on the scriptures. We'll learn how to schedule our prayer lives. There seems to be this rhythm uh, commended to us in the Psalms and the scriptures of day and night prayer when you wake up in the morning, before you go to bed at night. Um, We're going to learn how to confess sin, how to lament in our sadness, how to offer thanksgiving to God. And I trust that if we implement the things that we're going to learn, we are going to be blessed as a church family. And and we're going to grow in grace and in holiness and be conformed more and more to Christ's image together. And uh, that kind of blessing begins with uh, being a people formed by God's word. And so we're going to start this morning considering meditation on God's word. It's essential to being a people of true and deep prayer is being a people formed by God's word, being a people of God's word. And so uh, being a people who co- uh, consistently meditate on God's word. It's, a, it's fitting that the opening uh, psalm of this divine prayer book is a psalm about meditation on God's word because meditation on God's word truly is the gateway to true and deep prayer. So let's look at Psalm 1. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's word, let's listen with reverence and with joy because this is the voice of our God speaking to us. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that now as we open your word and collectively meditate on your word and consider your word, that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your word. 
that you would open our eyes to behold Christ in all of his beauty and splendor and excellence, that you would open our eyes to behold the great salvation that you have accomplished for us in him, that you would open our eyes to behold all of our comfort that's contained within your work, that you would open our eyes to to see uh, where your word might challenge us and convict us. And Lord, we ask that in it all that you would be glorified that you would be honored, that you would be praised in our hearts, and that we would find our delight and our satisfaction and our true happiness in you. Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Now, interestingly, uh, as we said, the, the Psalms is a divine prayer book. It's God's uh, inspired prayer book for us to learn how to pray. But you may have noticed as we read Psalm 1 that this text that we just read is not a prayer, actually. Uh, and, and in fact, the first two Psalms are not actually prayers. Um, the first two Psalms are gateway Psalms. They're preparatory Psalms. They're preparing us to encounter this divinely inspired prayer book. They're not prayers themselves, though. Uh, and, and they come to us as a unit. Psalm 1 and 2, they come to us together. They come to us as a, as a unit, and they are the introduction together to the Psalms. They show us what we're going to uh, be uh, looking at in this divinely inspired prayer book. And one of the indicators that they're to be taken together is that these two Psalms are bookended with talking about the person, the kind of person who is truly blessed. Uh, Psalm 1-1, it begins with saying that the one who is blessed is the one who has based the entirety of their life on, who day and night meditates on God's word. And Psalm 2 closes with verse 12, uh, telling us that the one who is blessed is the one who has taken refuge in God's Son. And so these psalms together are bookended with talking about the, the, the person who is truly blessed in life. And this word blessed is an interesting one. Uh, when translated into the, into the Greek, it's actually the same word uh, found in Matthew's uh, Sermon on the Mount. Um, it, it, with Jesus, when he's preaching in the Sermon on the Mount, his, his beatitudes, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is a, a kind of beatitude. These psalms are, are together a kind of beatitude, revealing those who are truly blessed. And um, it's not actually blessed, uh, the word here for blessed, it's not actually the same word that's usually translated as blessed in the Old Testament. This is a word that means to be blessed in the sense that one is overflowing with joy. Um, This is a word that means uh, to be blessed in the sense that you are happy. Um, And and not just any sort of happy, uh, not just sort of joyful, it's actually plural. Uh, So you could think of it as saying joys upon joys for the man who so on and so forth. Uh, Abundant in happiness is the man. Uh, Abundant in pleasures is the man who so on and so forth. And so it's a particular kind of happiness. That it's, it's, it's an abundant happiness. It, it's a, the sort of happiness that doesn't wax or wane. It's the kind of happiness that isn't based on circumstances. It's the kind of happiness that is firm and fixed and immovable. It's the kind of happiness that sustains you for the long haul, even in times of sadness and suffering and loss. It's deeper and truer than, than any sort of happiness that can be offered anywhere else. And so this psalm pretty much immediately pulls you in, doesn't it? And it, it, how can I find happiness like that? How can I find abundant joy, abundant happiness, joys upon joys for myself? 
And that's what we're setting out to discover this morning. We'll seek to do that first by considering meditating on God's word and second, finding true happiness. Meditating on God's word and finding true happiness. Uh, First, meditating on God's word. In verse one, we see what this blessed, happy man does not do. Uh, He does not walk according to the counsel of the wicked. Um, In other words, the sort of first ditch that one can fall into that keeps them from this road to happiness is listening to and following the sinful advice of those who are opposed to God. Uh, Walking or living means to to live according to uh, a particular way. It means to live according to the wicked's counsel or, or advice. Uh, The second pit that one could fall into that keeps them from the road to happiness is standing in the path of sinners. Uh, So standing in the path of sinners, which means that you're kind of taking your stand uh, with those who are opposed to God and his ways. It means accepting the lifestyle, the views, the the habits, uh, uh, the, the ways of those who are opposed to God and his ways. Um, And then the third sort of ditch that is considered here, the third danger is sitting in the seat of scoffers. This will keep you from the road to happiness. Can you see the imagery here? There's, there's, it's an image of one becoming more and more settled in the way of sin. Um, First, they were walking according to the counsel and advice of the wicked, kind of testing things out. Uh, And then they were taking their stand in the path of sinners. And now things have progressed even further. They're growing nice and comfortable, nice and settled in this way of life. Now they're sitting in the seat of scoffers. Scoffers are those who mock God and his ways and think them foolish. And this one, this one, uh, this is one who has deviated from God's blessed path and they've started walking and then they've regressed to standing and then they've regressed to sitting. They've grown nice and comfortable in wickedness and in sinfulness and in a scoffing way of life. And the message is clear. If you want to be truly happy, avoid this way. Uh, do not take your stand with sinners. Do not grow nice and comfortable with scoffers. This will not lead to true happiness and will only lead to despair and decay. In fact, uh, it will lead to, look at the last word of Psalm 1, it will lead to perishing. It will lead to perishing. Uh, it's, it's not a coincidence that the first word of the psalm is blessed and the last word of the psalm is perish. Uh, in fact, it, we can't say it in, in English, but the word translated as blessed actually begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and the first letter of the word translated as perish is actually the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and the, the author here is using a, a Hebrew poetic literary device to draw the, leader's attention, the reader's attention to the reality that there are two paths to choose here, the way of the wicked, and that way will inevitably lead to perishing, and the way of the righteous. And this way will inevitably uh, lead to uh, happiness and blessing. And so the the, the message is clear. Avoid this way. Avoid the counsel of the wicked and standing with sinners and sitting with scoffers. Avoid listening to their podcasts and taking their advice and all that. But what we see in verse 2 is that the path to true blessing, true happiness, is found not just in the avoidance of a certain way, 
but it's actually found in embracing this other way. Your life will inevitably, listen, your life will inevitably be influenced by some sort of counsel. You will inevitably stand, take your stand somewhere. You will inevitably be settled in some sort of views and values and practices and in some sort of way of life. And so the blessed man does not walk according to the counsel of the wicked and stand with sinners and sit with scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now the word translated as law here is the word Torah. Uh, and, and it could also be translated as instruction. Um, it's, 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 uh, typically, when, when it's used in Scripture, it either has a very narrow meaning or a very broad meaning. When it has a very narrow meaning, it means uh, like God's commandments, his particular commandments, like we just read the Ten Commandments earlier. When it has a more broad meaning, it's just simply talking about God's Word as a whole. Um, and, and, and the meaning here is that it's talking about God's Word as a whole. It's talking about the canon of Scripture, Um, At the time, the canon of scripture that the Israelites had was the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And so the psalmist here is concerned with one's delight and meditation being God's word. And the blessed man's approach to God's word is one of affection and it's one of action. It's one of affection in that they delight in God's word. Uh, the, the, the blessed man, the heart of the blessed man is inclined toward God's word. They are wholeheartedly committed to God's word. God's word has captured their affections. They, they find their joy, their delight, their pleasure in God's word. And this affection takes form in a particular action. And the action, the habit, the practice uh, of delight in God's word is the practice of meditation. Now, One of the problems with talking about biblical meditation is that there could be as many different understandings of what meditation is as there are people in the room. Uh, And and probably one of the most common pictures uh, that someone gets in their mind when we say the word meditation is one mostly influenced by some sort of Eastern religious practices wherein one seeks to empty their mind of of all thought and, 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 and of everything. Uh, and this is really hot right now, this, this sort of Eastern meditation, you know, your health uh, dieting podcast that you listen to, or your, your yoga instructor, or your friend at the liberal arts college, all may have encouraged you to, to do this. Um, but but the Bible, what the Bible means when it says meditation is actually quite different. Uh, biblical meditation is not emptying your mind. Biblical meditation is the filling of your mind with God's Word. Biblical meditation is meditation on something. And it's what we see here. It's biblical meditation is meditation on God's law, on his word, on the scriptures. Um, J.I. Packer has a really, really good definition of Christian meditation in his catechism. Uh, He says that in meditation, one prayerfully reads and reflects upon the Holy Scripture according to its intended meaning with openness to personal spiritual direction from God. Now, that's probably one of the best definitions I've I've ever heard. Meditation means to prayerfully read and reflect on Holy Scripture according to its intended meaning, with openness to personal spiritual direction from God. And so the big question then that, uh, that comes after we read that is, how do we do that? How do we read and reflect on Holy Scripture prayerfully, openness to, uh, to, to spiritual direction from God? Um, well, let's consider three ways. Uh, there are, uh, these are by no means exhaustive. We're going to learn how to do this more and more as we uh, do so in the Christian life. But 
there are, here are three ways to help us begin to meditate on God's word. First, we meditate by marinating. We meditate by marinating. Marinating, if you're familiar with it, it's slow work. It's slow work. Um, some poultry can even uh, marinate for up to two days, for up to 48 hours. Um, or if you're uh, like a vegetarian or something, however long it takes to, to marinate tofu. Probably a long time because it tastes really bad. Uh, but but medi- <laughs> marinating is, is slow work. And similarly, meditation on the Bible is slow work. Uh, you need to slow down and marinate in the, sec- in the sacred text of Scripture. Uh, and this becomes really, really necessary in an age like ours, where we rarely ever slow down to do anything. Uh, we're constantly on the go. We're constantly busying ourselves with work and with amusing ourselves and entertaining ourselves and, and, and comforting ourselves with Netflix and social media and, and all of these silly things. And, and Scripture deserves the sacrifice of our focused and undivided slow attention. And it just takes slowing down to, to do that. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, in his sermon on Psalm 1, he compares reading Scripture quickly to uh, horses bolting their oats. Uh, 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 admittedly, when I read this, I had to look it up because I had no idea what he was talking about. Uh, But apparently, sometimes, when a horse eats their oats, they just gobble them all up so quickly. Uh, It's too quickly, actually. And when they do this, they actually forego the nutritious benefit that they would have received from their oats if they would have taken the time to, to chew them properly. And you can tell when they do this, when they bolt their oats, by when it comes out on the back end. And uh, similarly, if, if we read the sacred text too quickly, if we read the Bible too quickly, we might not receive the benefits that we find within. We don't retain the precious truths that we find within. We forego the treasure buried beneath. We, 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 it, we, it takes a sort of slowing down. It takes a gentle reading again and again and again, and it takes reflection and thought and prayer. And so rather than bolting our oats, meditation requires something more like how uh, cows eat their food. If you've ever spent any amount of time on a farm, you'll notice that cows are always chewing something. It's always constantly chewing something all day. And that's because cows have to chew their food twice before they can digest it. They, they take a bite and then they chew for a good long time and swallow. And then later that food actually comes back up again in the form of cud, and they have to chew it again for a good long time before swallowing it and digesting it. And all this takes a really long time. Cows end up, I found this out this last week, they end up spending about eight hours a day chewing their food. It takes 40,000 jaw movements. It's crazy. And so think about doing that with Scripture. We read it over and over again, and we read it again, and we turn it over and over again in our minds, and we pray about it, and we reflect on it, and we read it again, sucking all of the marrow, all of the nutrition that we can out of the text, drinking every last drop of the text. We meditate by marinating. Uh, next, we meditate by, by memorizing. Memorizing is, uh, is helpful for meditation on two fronts. Um, for one, it's helpful because the work of memorizing a passage of Scripture literally requires you to meditate on it. You know, in, in memorization, you're, you're reading the text over and over again. You're writing it down and underlining things, and you're saying it over and over. You're reading it out loud 
over and over again to yourself. Another thing I like to do when I uh, try to memorize scripture is I try to emphasize a different word each time I say the text out loud. I, 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 I emphasize a different word as I say it. Uh, and if you start to do that, you start to see kind of all the different aspects of the text, all the beautiful things that the text reveals. And this is the process of memorizing scripture. It's the same process that we go through in meditation. But not only that, uh, memorizing the Bible also leads to further meditation on the Bible throughout the day. Uh, If you've memorized the text that you've been reading in the morning and the evening, you're able to think on it throughout the day. Whenever you get a moment, you can kind of say it under your breath. You can think about it. You can can, uh, briefly uh, reflect on it. Uh, And interestingly here, uh, the word translated as meditation here is actually the same word translated as plot in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kind of image that you get is, is you know, someone kind of constantly thinking about their evil plans and, and twiddling their fingers and, and uh, murmuring under their breath. And that's, that's sort of what happens when we meditate on a text that we've memorized throughout the day. Um, if you grew up watching cartoons in the 90s, uh, you might remember Pinky and the Brain. Anyone? Yeah, okay, Pinky and the Brain. Uh, the two cartoon mice, the brain is this like brilliant, uh, evil, diabolical m- mouse that constantly has plans to take over the world in every episode, and Pinky is this sort of ignorant, unaware sidekick. And uh, every episode, the brain says to Pinky, Pinky, are you pondering what I'm pondering? Uh, and, and he's generally not. Uh, and then the brain unpacks his plot to take over and rule the entire world. This pondering, this plotting has consumed the brain's whole life. He thinks of nothing else. He considers, he ponders nothing else. He plots nothing else. And memorizing texts of Scripture allows for a similar sort of fixation on God's Word. We meditate by memorizing. And next, we meditate by minding, by minding. Uh, Packer's definition, wonderful definition, that we prayerfully read and reflect on Scripture with an openness to personal spiritual direction from God. So we, we prayerfully read and reflect with openness to hearing a promise from God that we're called to trust, hearing a statement that we're called to believe, hearing a commandment that we're called to obey. We prayerfully read and reflect with an aim toward minding what we've been told. And this is actually kind of wrapped up in the idea of Hebrew meditation, meditation on the sacred text uh, that didn't lead to obedience and a change in one's life would have puzzled the early readers of this text. Uh, they, they wouldn't have recognized it. That's why Joshua and, uh, and, and Joshua 1.8, the Lord tells Joshua, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do all that is written in it. The meditation is not an action that just leads to knowing more facts about the Bible. That's not what meditation is. It's an action that culminates in obedience to what one has meditated on. The Bible is not a a textbook that we master. It's the word from heaven that masters us. It's It's not a word that we master. It's not a textbook that we master. It's the word from heaven that masters us. It's not just given to enlarge our brains. It's given to enlarge our hearts and to be obeyed with our hands and with our feet. And so the text that you've marinated in and that you've memorized and that you've prayerfully read and reflected on should always be treasured in your heart in such a way that it leads to minding what it says. And for those that do, you will inevitably find that what is found in the Holy Scriptures will ultimately lead to true happiness and true blessing in life. 
Um, th- this is simply, this is true simply because of what scripture is. It's, it's the voice of our creator and father. Second Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God, is spoken by God. What is contained in holy scripture is the voice of our God speaking to us in his fatherly care. Jesus says himself, Matthew 4, 4, that scripture is our heavenly food. It's, it's food for our souls. Uh, Psalm 119.05 says that scripture is the lamp unto our feet and the light unto our path. Uh, Hebrews 6.19 says that it is the anchor of our souls. It gives us hope. It's the anchor of our soul. Uh, Proverbs 2.6 says that the scriptures give us wisdom and knowledge and understanding. Psalm 119.50 says that it is our comfort. It comforts us and that it gives us joy and peace because it cleanses our consciences of guilt and shame. Now, Psalm 19.10 says that it is sweeter than honey and it's more valuable than gold, even much fine gold. It's more valuable than all of the wealth that you have. John 6.68 says that in the scriptures, we find the words of eternal life. Scripture is all of that and more. It's all of that and more because of who it is that scripture reveals to us. Uh, Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 5, 39 to 40, he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So remember what we learned about in the beginning of our time in this text, the Psalms to be taken together with Psalm 2 and they together reveal to us how to be truly blessed, truly happy by delighting in and meditating on God's word, Psalm 1, and by taking refuge in God's Son, Psalm 2. And the reason that we delight and meditate on God's Word is because it reveals to us God's Son so that we might come to Him, so that we might take refuge in Him. It's where we meet with Christ that we might take refuge in Him. Seeing Him and meeting Him is actually the biggest reason that God's Word was given to us in the first place. That's why John 1, the Apostle John, actually calls Jesus the Word of God. Jesus is God's word, embodied and personified. Sally Lloyd-Jones says that Jesus is is everything that God wanted to say to the world in one person. He's the point of God's word. He's, He's the one that we see and meet and find in the scriptures, all so that we will take refuge in him and know him. And so those that do take refuge in him and know him through God's word as he is revealed in God's word, they are truly happy. They find their true happiness. And to illustrate what this happiness looks like, the author gives us an image. A psalmist writes, he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. And so the image is of a tree planted, it's not a wild tree, It's been intentionally planted, and it's planted by streams of water. Uh, It's planted by streams of water so that when it faces the harsh elements of the Middle Eastern desert, it will continue to be well-fed and nourished. It will continue to bear fruit in its season. It will continue to not wither. The image of the tree shows us that the one who delights in God's word and takes refuge in God's son will always have joy, a joy that the world cannot take away, as Jesus says in John 16, 22. He always prospers in whatever he's doing, whatever he goes through, whatever he faces. And the same cannot be said of the wicked. Verse four, the wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. 
So whenever the chaff faces these elements, it's taken out. Whenever the wind blows, it blows away right along with it. And I want us to notice, though, that, that this text tells us something about the kind of happiness that we're to be looking for. It te- it, there's something that the image of the tree shows us about this kind of happiness that we learn about in Psalm 1. Uh, you know, it's likely that when we think of what happiness looks like in one's life, or what prosperity looks like in one's life, we think of things like health and wealth and power, and fame, and physical beauty, and, and, and things like that. But that's not the kind of happiness and kind of prosperity talked about in this text. Those things are fleeting. Those things are fleeting. Eventually, your health will deteriorate. Eventually, your physical beauty will deteriorate. Eventually, your wealth will burn. Eventually, power and fame and all of it will slip through your fingers. And if your happiness is based on those things, your happiness will slip away right along with them. When the winds of life, when the winds of adversity, of illness, of of poverty, blow those things away, you will blow away right along with them. So no, true happiness, true joy, true prosperity is not found in those things. And we see, too, that that true happiness in this text is not synonymous with a sort of trite cheerfulness. Uh, this might be even more counterintuitive to us, but true happiness is not synonymous with cheerfulness or good vibes. True happiness is not putting a smile on your face and, and, and pretending that all is well. As we see in abundance in these psalms, suffering in life is real. Close to half the psalms are psalms of lament and mourning. Adversity comes to the tree and the chaff alike. The harsh elements, winds of adversity, sickness and poverty and emotional turmoil are real. Depression, anxiety, mental illnesses, they're all real. So please don't look at this text and think that if you just base your life on what God's word says and the Savior reveals that things will be easy, that you'll live an easy life and have a sort of trite cheerfulness and, and have everything work out well. That, that your life will be filled with health and wealth and good vibes and that you'll never face suffering and sadness. That's, that, that's not what the text says. That's not what it says. The text shows us that the winds of adversity, seasons of depression and illness and lack, suffering and sadness and sickness and struggle come to both the righteous and the wicked alike. We see that this is the case in this text. We see that this is the case in all the scriptures. But probably no more, more clearly than, than in the life of Jesus. Jesus is the only one who lived up to what the standard Psalm 1 talks about. He is the only man who completely based his life on God's word. He meditated on it day and night. He was, according to this text definition, blessed. He was the the, the man that this text is talking about. He's the ideal human, the, 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 the pinnacle of humanity, exactly what humanity should be. And yet Jesus was a man of sorrows, Jesus was without place to rest his head. Jesus faced adversity from his family. He was abandoned by his friends. He cried real tears and faced real heartbreak. He even faced torture at the hands of Roman authorities. But what this text does show and what the life of Christ does show is that there's something deeper. There's a deeper, truer happiness that remains even in the midst of suffering and sadness. There's a deeper, truer happiness that remains even in the face of loss and poverty and depression. The adversities of life come to both the righteous and the wicked, but only one knows the hope that we have to look forward to and the joy of having God's promise of eternal life. 
And that's what we see here in verses 5 and 6. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The scriptures of the Old and New Testaments both draw our eyes to a day of judgment. Dan prayed based on this in his pastoral prayer and and lament. There's a day coming when all the former things will pass away. There's a day of judgment coming where God is going to judge every single person. Everyone will face their maker and they're going to have to give an account to the God who created them, everyone. And on that day, those who stood with with sinners will no longer stand. They, They will not stand in the judgment. The, the, the wicked in their way will perish forever. Those who did not take refuge in God's Son and treasure Him as He's revealed in God's Word will perish. And this is contrasted with the way of the righteous. At the judgment, rather than perishing, the righteous will have their happiness fulfilled and perfected. They, on that day, the blessing that this text talks about for the righteous will be experienced uh, by them in a purified and perfected sense. We, we will experience all the blessings. Uh, Ephesians 1.4 says that in Christ, we experience every blessing in the heavenly places. All of them will be lavished on us in that day in Christ. On that day, the righteous won't face suffering or sadness any longer. God will wipe away every tear from our cheek. No more depression or anxiety or loss. The righteous will be with God forever and ever in this utter state of bliss and perfection. And I think if we're honest, though, that we all know that none of us actually deserve to be there. None of us deserve to be in this category. And this is one of the things that that we struggle with when we read texts like this. We see this description of this tree that bears fruit and it's it's always steadfast and it doesn't wither. And we go, I'm not sure that that'd always be a good description of me. But verse six is a much needed reminder that what separates the righteous from the wicked, the happy from the perishing, is not that the righteous have attained a certain level of morality or that they've done enough good works to earn a spot in heaven. Look at it. It's, It's that the Lord knows them. It's that he knows their way. It's that he knows them. And this isn't this, this knowing, this isn't a kind of distant knowledge. It's, it's not that God knows of someone who uh, is a pretty good person, therefore they get to go to heaven. To speak of knowing in this way is a relational sort of knowledge, not just any sort of relational knowledge. It's an intimate and devoted kind of knowing Like as in Genesis 4.1, Adam knew his wife, Eve. It's the same word used on both occasions. And so this kind of being known here means to be approved of, to be loved, to belong to God. Body and soul belonging to him completely. And that's that's what's utterly astounding here is that for all of those who come to and meet and take refuge in God's Son as He's revealed in God's Word, God knows them in this way. Christian, like your maker knows you. Like He's not just kind of familiar with you, but in Christ He knows you and He's for you and He treasures you and you belong with Him. Like He's with you completely. He's for you, utterly for you. That's what we find in God's word. We find a God who is with us in force. We find his son, our savior, in whom we take refuge. 
We find strength and peace and wisdom and comfort and understanding. We find our Father's heavenly voice caring for us, comforting us, challenging us where we need to be challenged, convicting us where we need to be convicted. And what we find ultimately is we find a God who is our true happiness. With a, a, he, he is the only one that will make us truly happy. As, as Augustine said, Lord, you made us for yourself and our hearts are restless till we rest in you. You'll never be satisfied with anything other than knowing him. You'll never be satisfied with anything other than, than having fellowship with him, communion with him. And that's what we receive in his word. We receive fellowship with our God and that gives us a joy that's constant, a a happiness that's constant, that doesn't wither and that will never go away. It's an eternal joy, a happiness and joy that is as firm and fixed and sure as the God that it's based on. That's why we meditate on God's word day and night. That's why we delight ourselves in God's word because it reveals the God who is our true utter, eternal happiness. That's why we meditate on God's word day and night. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who speaks to us. Now, we don't have to wonder what you're like, what you've done in history, what you expect of us. You've spoken and you've spoken clearly and you've spoken with certainty. And you've given us great comfort and great salvation. You've given us um, a means to see your son that we might come to him, that we might meet with him, that we might take refuge in him. Lord, and so I, I ask that we as a people would avail ourselves to this wonderful means of grace that we would uh, search and and seek and find you in your word, your presence in your word, and that we would be filled with all joy and peace and believing in so doing, that we would be truly blessed, that we would be like trees planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, its leaf does not wither. Would you help us to prosper in all that we do because our happiness, our joy, our blessedness is based on you and on nothing else. Would you help us to trust you, to depend on you, to delight in you above all? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.